It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Approaching the ring from St. Louis, Missouri, weighing in at 245 pounds, Randy Orton. Or methodical, diabolical. He hits a sweet combination. Randy Orton, known as the Viper, is a superstar in world wrestling entertainment who's won 14 world heavyweight titles. The wrestler also stars in the best-selling WWE 2K video games. But it was a tattoo artist who got the win in a legal bout over Orton's image in the video games. Catherine Alexander sued the WWE and the video game maker, saying the five tattoos she inked on Orton were used without her permission. The companies came back with a defense that it was fair use in order to recreate Orton's image in the games. The jury gave the win to the tattoo artist, but it was like a split decision because the award was for just a fraction of what she wanted. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Kettenmuchin Rosenman. Terry, I've been hearing about a lot of copyright cases involving tattoos recently. Is the law in this area settled? No. Intellectual property in tattoos remains very unsettled. Demonstrating that is two recent jury verdicts we have within the last 30 days. One from the Southern District of Illinois, captioned Alexander versus Take-Two Interactive Software. And then another one coming out of Central District, California, which is Los Angeles, captioned Brophy versus Almanzan, which apparently is the real name of Cardi B, the queen of rap. And both of them came to sort of different results and I think demonstrate that there's still an enormous amount of fluidity in the intellectual property surrounding tattoos. Terry, so the fair use defense didn't work for the WWE in this case. That's correct. So this is the famous Take-Two video game WWE 2K 16, 17, 18, (laughs) 19 comes out every year. And starting with the WWE 2K16, they were using as one of the on-screen wrestlers, Randy Orton. Randy Orton, for those of you who don't follow the WWE, is 13-time world champion of the WWE and famous for having his upper body heavily tattooed. Five distinct tattoos. And of course, to replicate him in the video game, the video game manufacturers had to show him with these tattoos. And in advance of releasing the first game that Randy Orton was in, which was WWE 2K16 back in the fall of 2015. 
they went to his tattoo artist, a woman by the name of Catherine Alexander, and asked for permission to display these five tattoos on his character in the game and offered her a license fee, relatively small, $450. And she said no. Moreover, she said she would never license her tattoos to anyone. A couple of years go by, and she files a lawsuit against the game manufacturer alleging copyright infringement. And lo and behold, it turns out she did have copyright registrations in each of the tattoos that she had applied to Randy Orton's torso. And the lawsuit went to trial back in September, and a jury found in her favor, found that there was copyright infringement. But the jury award was $3,750, which seems really low to me, especially if you consider, I don't know if, if the legal work was done on a contingency basis, but the cost of trial. You're right, June. This is a relatively trivial jury award and, in my view, represents a compromise on the part of the jury members. You often see this in civil lawsuits where there's some dispute within the jury members as to whether or not there should be a finding of liability in the first place. And the compromise usually goes something like this. Well, okay, we will agree to say that the defendant is liable and you will agree to say that the damages are going to be very low. And it's a typical jury compromise when the jury doesn't have a consensus. And I'm guessing that's exactly what happened here. And you're right. Chances are this was on a contingent fee basis. I don't know that for a fact, but that's typically the way these are pursued. And that would represent not enough money to cover the plaintiff's attorney's fees, not even come close. I happen to know the lead attorney for the defendants here, and that would have covered only about three hours of her time. So it's very much, I think, a victory for the defendant but they would probably have preferred not to have to take it to a jury to have prevailed on summary judgment, which has happened in the past with this particular defendant. It seemed to me like the jury was thinking about, you know, the implications because they found that none of the profits of the game were attributable to the five tattoos. And that makes sense to me because no one's playing the game to look at the tattoos. I think that's exactly right. I think the jury probably sat there and said to themselves, well, what would have been a reasonable license fee here instead of looking at what the profitability of the game was? And it really goes to a different question, June, which is whether or not this case should ever have gone to the jury in the first place. The sort of traditional game plan with respect to the defense against copyright and tattoos has been three parts. You argue that there's a fair use. You argue that there's an implied license. And you argue that there's a de minimis use. And your comment really goes towards this de minimis use issue. You see the tattoos fleetingly. He's one character in the game. It's clearly not contributing that much to the game user's enjoyment of the game. It's simply an identifier of one character in the game. And in the past, not that there are a ton of lawsuits on tattoos, but in the past, judges, particularly in the Southern District of New York, have thrown out these copyright and tattoo lawsuits in video games on the grounds of the de minimis use defense. There have also been tattoo lawsuits thrown out on the grounds of implied license. I mean, after all, if a person gets a tattoo on a body part, they're going to be then leaving the tattoo parlor and walking around in public, publicly displaying the tattoo to people. That's usually the reason they have a tattoo, so as to show off their body art to folks. And the tattoo artist knows that, and yet they're letting them walk around with this tattoo on them. That has to be an implied license on the part of the tattoo artist to allow this person to publicly display 
display the tattoo. And that's where reasoning has cost tattoo artists in the past any chance at even getting to a jury. The big surprise with this lawsuit was that it even got to the jury in the first place. Take Two Interactive had been successful in the past on summary judgment with respect to NBA games. The NBA players often have tattoos that are displayed in these video games. And they had managed to avoid jury trials and get summary judgment on an implied license or fair use or de minimis use. And here, the judge in the Southern District of Illinois, which probably doesn't get a lot of copyright mm-hmm. lawsuits, said, no, I'm not granting you summary judgment. I think there's a factual dispute. We'll let the jury sort it out. And so that was sort of the unusual thing here. And we'll have to see what happens going forward, whether more and more of these tattoo cases get to a jury. Let's go now from wrestlers to rappers. Cardi B was sued not over her tats, but over the tattoo on the cover of her 2016 mixtape. The full back tattoos of Kevin Brophy showing a tiger fighting a snake were photoshopped onto the back of the model in this sexually explicit cover. And Brophy sued, saying his publicity and privacy rights were violated. So this is a different twist. Sure. This is a sort of a different approach by the plaintiff. The plaintiff, Mr. Brophy, was not the tattoo artist, but he had obtained over a period of time a very complex tattoo on his back of a tiger fighting a snake. Actually quite artistic. Flash forward a couple years and Cardi B was about to release her breakthrough album. This is in 2016, the album that really made her into what she is now. And the album cover was, as you described, very racy. It involved a sexual uh, act being performed on her by a male whose back was to the camera. And apparently when they looked at the photographs of this photo session for the album cover, Cardi B did not like the back of the model, or so she testified trial. And so they photoshopped in this tattoo of Mr. Brophy, which they had found somewhere online. And there's no dispute that they found his tattoo online and photoshopped it onto the back of the actual model in this cover. So they used his tattoo. Mr. Brophy claims that he was humiliated, he was mortified, that he was embarrassed, psychologically traumatized by this cover of a sexual act being out there in the marketplace and afraid that people, including his kids and friends, would think this was him in real life doing this. And so he brought a lawsuit in federal court in Los Angeles, alleging that the use of his tattoo in this album cover was either a misappropriation of his likeness or an invasion of privacy on a sort of false light theory. And that's what this case is different from the case involving the Randy Orton tattoo in that there was no copyright allegation here, June. Cardi B had several defenses. She said on the stand, it's not him. To me, it doesn't look like his back at all. The tattoo was modified. And the jury sided with her. I'm wondering how much her celebrity had to do with the verdict. Well, you would certainly think so. My past experience in celebrity cases is that there is an influence on the jury. It's 
not always a positive influence on the jury. And there are certain celebrities, I think Cardi B is one of them, Taylor Swift, who if they're involved in the case, present in the courtroom, I think the jury does sort of slant toward them. So that may have happened here. Cardi B is very popular. My kids refer to her as the queen of rap. And so I think that there's no way you can't help but deal that. The other thing that happened during the trial is that the attorney for the plaintiff, for Mr. Brophy, got into it with her. And the attorney pushed the line a bit, and she pushed back and took great umbrage on the stand that anyone would claim that somehow their tattoo was responsible for the enormous success of this album and her music. And indeed, she went so far as to paint this as yet another case of a patriarchal society trying to deny that a woman was able to create something successful in the marketplace. And I think that as much as her public celebrity was very influential with the jury here. So considering all these verdicts, Who has the leverage in negotiations? Because the tattoo artist won the Randy Orton case, but the award was, as we've discussed, paltry. The issue here, June, is that the law is not sufficiently mature, not developed at the appellate level, so that litigants know what their rights are with some certainty. I think at some point, the circuit courts will say that there is, as a matter of law, an implied license here to publicly display the copyrights and or a de minimis use defense. The fair use defense is hard to make out in all these cases. I don't think that'll be successful. But if that's the way we come down, that the law is a little bit on the side of the user as opposed to the tattoo artist or the Brophy case, the tattoo wearer, I think the leverage is really against the tattoo artist. And we certainly see with this one verdict out of the Southern District of Illinois that juries just don't think this is worth much. And that'll make it a lot easier for the litigants to settle these cases, probably on the low side. Now, there's another side to this equation, which is when the end user, either Cardi B using this photo for an album or video game manufacturer using it in a video game, whether they really want to incur these substantial legal fees that are involved. Because even though Take-Two Interactive was only hit by the jury verdict for $3,750, they spent at least a million dollars, probably more, on the legal fees, none of which come back to them. Same in the Cardi B case, probably spent taking this case to trial a million dollars. And it seems to me it would make more sense for the end user of these tattoos in secondary creative works to go to whoever owns the intellectual property rights in the tattoo and negotiate something up front. And $450, as we saw in the Alexander case, is not going to get it done. And to offer them, you know, several thousands of dollars, which is certainly a lot less than the million dollars in attorney's fees and also diminishes risk, which is something that big companies are always looking for. Practically speaking, let's say one of these companies, Take-Two Interactive, can't come to an agreement with the tattoo artist. Isn't it pretty easy for them to obscure the tattoos or change the tattoos enough in the video game that they won't be responsible? Well, that's where this de minimis use defense comes in and has been successful in the past, that the player is in motion. You just get a glimpse of that tattoo. So the majority of the game does not involve looking at tattoos or seeing the tattoos. And so it seems like it should be covered by de minimis use defense. The problem with the case in the Southern District of Illinois is that the Seventh Circuit has never dealt with the issue of de minimis use. Illinois is part of the Seventh Circuit, which is based in Chicago and the states surrounding Illinois. 
and they just simply haven't dealt with it, whereas Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit have and have established pretty strong de minimis use defenses. And so the district court judge here said, well, they've never decided it, so I'll just let the jury consider whether the facts establish it or not. Arguably wrong, but um, that's the way it went. Um, so again, going forward, it just seems like an easy thing for a game manufacturer to go to the tattoo artist or the tattoo wearer and, and buy out the rights for a few thousand dollars. I mean, going forward, if there are more of these cases, if the game companies don't learn their lesson, do you think that this will be an area that's more defined then legally? The curious thing here, June, is that we've not had any of these court cases go up on appeal uh, to circuit court. So we just don't have appellate law. And tattoos are everywhere. It's different than music. Music cases are where uh, New York Second Circuit, um, Nashville, Detroit, Sixth Circuit, uh, Los Angeles, Ninth Circuit. So you have well-developed uh, law with respect to music cases. Art cases you see heavily in the Second Circuit, New York. Uh, movies, television cases you see heavily in on the West Coast, Ninth Circuit. Tattoos are everywhere. I mean, Southern District of Illinois, haven't seen a copyright case there in forever. And so you just can't be sure where the next one's going to come. Uh, we do know that there's going to be a trial in one of these NBA video game cases in Ohio in the spring of 2023, assuming it doesn't get settled or pushed off. And again, that's yet another court that gets to decide these. So we're just not seeing them brought consistently in one place where one of them gets up to the circuit court, the circuit court renders some law, clarifies the situation, and then we move forward with some certainty. It's just very odd. The the cases have been very diffuse, just brought everywhere. And we'll see what happens in this upcoming case where a tattoo artist who inked NBA players, including LeBron James and Tristan Thompson, is suing the maker of the video game NBA 2K. Thanks so much for your insights as always, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catamuchin Rosenman. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. When a star athlete and a supermodel get divorced, it's sure to make headlines. Although Tom Brady and Giselle Bundchen have tried to quell any media frenzy by coming to a quick settlement and issuing corresponding statements on Instagram about their divorce after 13 years of marriage and two children. 
and Brady addressed the divorce on his podcast. Obviously, the good news is things that it's a very amicable situation, and I'm really focused on two things, and taking care of my family and certainly my children, and secondly, doing the best job I can to win football games. So that's what professionals do. You focus at work when it's time to work, and then when you come home, you focus on the priorities that are at home, and all you can do is the best you could do, and that's what I'll just continue to do as long as I'm working and as long as I'm being a dad. Joining me is divorce attorney Christopher Melcher, a partner at Walser, Melcher, and Yoda. Their statements tracked each other. Bunchin in an Instagram story said, With much gratitude for our time together, Tom and I have amicably finalized our divorce. Brady said, We arrived at this decision amicably and with gratitude for the time we spent together. And they both talked about their children, asked the public to respect their privacy. Does that indicate that this was a well-worked-out divorce? Absolutely. The statements on social media were released by each of them at around the same time. Uh, It wasn't a joint statement, but the statements were very similar and indicate that they have resolved things amicably and that they're going forward just really as co-parents and trying to focus on their kids and let this kind of get behind them. The petition for dissolution of marriage was just three pages. So somewhere else, I take it, is the legal document about how they're splitting things up. Yeah, so they have to file a case in public court to get a divorce. And so that started with Giselle filing a petition for dissolution. And then the next step will be to ask the court uh, jointly to enter a judgment of divorce, and that would return them to a status of single people. And most spouses will then also tell the court what the terms of their settlement are with regard to property and kids and support. Here, my guess is they will keep that confidential and um, not put that in the judgment. So we don't get to see that. Uh, And there'll be no orders on it either. It would just be a confidential settlement agreement between the two of them. And no one would put it into a court file unless someone broke the agreement and it needed to be enforced. That's typically how these deals are run. So it seems incredibly quick, but apparently they were negotiating about it and hired lawyers at the beginning of October. So it's taken about a month for them to resolve this. It could have taken even longer than that. The story started to break Uh, about the couple having problems, but uh, they may have been experiencing these problems much earlier and working on a divorce settlement for quite some time. And for me, doing these type of cases, that's the ideal situation is to work all the details out before the public knows of the split. And then um, we then announce or the couple announces that they're splitting around the same time as we're announcing the settlement. So it's possible that they were able to arrange all these details in a month. But my my suspicion is it would have taken much longer than that because there's a lot of complexity when you have that much wealth and also complexity around how they're going to share time with their kids in a way that's acceptable and and best for the children. So to think that they did all that in a month is unlikely. One of the most controversial parts of a divorce is often who'll get custody of the children. Well, they both said they agreed to joint custody and 
she said, we'll continue co-parenting. Do you think it's that's all it says, joint custody, or there's a lot more about times and places, et cetera, in the final agreement? So joint custody is a very broad term, which could mean a lot of different things. It, it certainly does not always mean equal time. And in most cases, parents don't equally share time with their children. It's, it can be very difficult to do that uh, when one or both parents are working a lot. And children also sometimes want to have a home base and they just want to have a place where they're regularly staying and, and then they just spend substantial time with the other parent. So here, Tom is working a lot and that takes him away from Florida often. So, you know, he, he couldn't have the hands-on parenting, uh, at least while he's engaged in that work schedule, that a parent who works locally could have. So there's going to have to be some give and take between the couple, and it sounds like they've achieved or worked that out so that um, when Tom is away, obviously the kids would be with Giselle, but then hopefully when Tom is in town that he would have that time to kind of offset it to keep the relationship going. And it might surprise some that Bunchen is worth almost twice as much reportedly, according to celebrity net worth, as Brady is. What would a prenup cover, generally? I would anticipate that this couple had a premarital agreement because both of them brought significant wealth into the marriage. And most of these prenups... Uh, for a couple like this, would say that they're each going to keep their own premarital property and any property that either of them acquires during marriage would be their own. And there might not be any uh, shared property unless they decide to take title to, let's say, a home, family residence jointly, then they would make that their joint property. But many times these uh, marriages between two celebs will involve a complete separate estate for each one of them. And I can't imagine that there would be any spousal support or alimony here. There could be child support. But again, it, it, you know, at these levels of wealth, nobody needs any money. And in a way, that makes it a lot easier to solve these cases because the money is not scarce. And with low asset cases, which most you know, families, you know, it's defined as, as not having a lot of assets to split, maybe a house and a retirement account, it's very difficult. Those, to me, are the scariest cases because you know, there's not going to be enough money to go around in that family to maintain the standard of living that they had together because they're now living in two households the same amount of money, something's got to give, and that's going to be lifestyle. This couple has none of those concerns. So you think that there might actually not even be a provision for child support? That's right. I I can't imagine that there would be any child support paid here. Uh, I mean, the law might, you know, technically provide for it if somebody asked, but Usually in these cases, they're just going to go their separate ways. They they may have kept all of their assets and income separate to begin with, so there may not have been a lot of mixing. And there's really no need for any support. I mean, the, both of these spouses, you know, make tremendous amounts of money, so there's there's no need for reallocating income between the two of them for support purposes. I found this interesting. They have four different houses that they purchased during their marriage. So it's possible that 
even those weren't purchased jointly, that they might be in one one's name or the other and not have to be split? I didn't check the title of these things, and, and many times these are held not even in their own names. They're held usually in an entity that's created by the couple, and so it makes it very difficult sometimes to see who really owns this property. But we will you know, see a couple purchase a home together, and even though they have separate estates, symbolically they kind of want to feel like this is our home and not, you know, their spouse's home. So really, I guess, for symbolic reasons, they will oftentimes purchase a home together. But that's about it. And, and so there may not be any other shared property here. After the divorce, the property is split and money issues, we're assuming there are none. But even though they say that they're going to continue to co-parent, might problems arise in the future about the custody arrangements anyway or about, you know, decisions about the children's lives, where they're going to go to school, for example, things like that? Well, in, in most divorces, there's going to be some lingering issues involving kids, and that can be disputes over changes of uh, time spent uh, with the children, or maybe even a relocation out of state, or issues of child support. So that's a common feature uh, post-judgment of a divorce case. It's unlikely to happen here because of the level of attention that this couple had on their marriage. It was, even though they're both famous, it was really surprising to me that there was this much media attention on their split. And that's one of the reasons why I think that they settled so quickly, because it was just embarrassing and kind of harmful probably to them to have this much attention. So any dispute that they would have going forward would have to be so serious to justify airing that out in a public court proceeding. So I, I got to imagine that this scrutiny that's inherent here would keep the parents on their best behavior, would keep them in a settlement-minded mode, not only to protect their own brand or reputation, but to protect their kids, because their children will see all of this in social media and reporting, and it's really embarrassing to those kids. And the dispute would have to warrant putting those kids and themselves through all of that anguish. And I, I, I can't really imagine what that would be, but we have seen, like with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, having six years of litigation and dragging all that through. And it's just really, I question how any of that could be worth it. I'm surprised that you're surprised that this divorce got so much attention because he's such a big football star. She's a supermodel. It seems made for the tabloids to me. Well, it is. And, you know, they're, they're a young, beautiful, successful couple. But, you know, hey, this is common. You know, every, everyday issues here that people get married and it doesn't work out and they get divorced and they move forward. And there is no controversy here. And I guess that's what's surprising me. There were no allegations of misconduct and there was no bizarre behavior. And so, uh, you know, wh why is it? What is it the interest that we all have in these stories? And that, that's just a curiosity to me. And I guess I'm desensitized to it because I'm working with celebrities in divorce. And I know that they're just like the rest of us. They, they have the same problems that we all do, but they also then have the media attention element that, that none of us face if we're going through a divorce. 
Yeah, Brady mentioned that on um, the media attention element on his podcast. You've represented A-list celebrities. What's easier in a divorce and what's more difficult in a divorce with a celebrity involved or two celebrities? Well, when you have a two celebrity couple or you know or both spouses are celebrities, the media attention on it uh, makes it very difficult to make a deal. Uh, and that that's why most of these folks will do things quietly, and it's very difficult to keep this a secret. But before the breakup is announced, we'll try to work all this stuff out so they can have some space or privacy to do so. When the story breaks and it's it's known that there's a problem in the relationship, then there's intense scrutiny on why they're breaking up. And we have people coming out of the woodwork and making statements or allegations. And that can really disrupt the settlement process and, you know, slow it down. I mean, we're, like I say, they're, they're just regular humans here. And so if somebody's coming out and there's some cheating allegations that are now become public, it is very hurtful and difficult for people to emotionally move forward. And so that, that's the struggle, I think, that makes it hard. The, the fact that they have a lot of money, a lot of times people say, oh, it must be so hard to settle those cases or to go to court one because there's so much money. And no, it's actually easier because there's money. They can hire professionals and they can afford to you know, go through that process where the rest of us you know, find it very difficult. So I, I would just say it's the media attention. And then my focus and my reminders to clients is that their kids are seeing this. And every child uh, is impacted by their parents' divorce, and the immediate family and friends are going to know about it. But when you add celebrity parents to the mix, everybody knows about that. And I'm trying to put myself in that child's position and relate that to the parents and let them know, like, this is out there forever and how difficult that's going to be and keep the focus on on their kids. This, I think most people who look at this divorce are like, this is nothing like me because of the amounts of money involved and the celebrity, as we talked about. Is there anything that the average person can learn from this split up? So we all can learn from this, and, and um, with celebrities are supposed to be, or hopefully, role models here and examples now, we haven't seen a lot of good examples lately, but this is one of them where if they're going to break up, and I'm sure they tried very hard to keep the relationship going, but if they're going to break up, to do it in a dignified way. And that there was a lot at stake here in terms of money and kids, but this couple was able to solve this problem quickly and quietly. And, you know, why is it that people who don't have a lot of money will spend pretty much everything they have fighting with each other. And that's what I've seen as a divorce lawyer is that these problems are all the same. Uh, There's more money attached to some of the cases and others, but they're all the same in that their spouses or co-parents that aren't getting along, they're breaking up, they have to deal with some financial issues and some kid issues. It's not rocket science. And why is it that some will settle quickly and others will spend potentially the rest of their life fighting with each other and allowing that to define themselves. So the the takeaway here is it doesn't have to be that way. They can do this. And of course, it takes two people to do that. And so I think this is equally reflective and it only could have been accomplished by having two decent, reasonable spouses that put their kids' interests and their own joint interests ahead of any selfish interests that they have. 
Thanks for being on the show, Chris. That's divorce attorney Christopher Melcher. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.